following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So for this morning, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. This is the main preaching series we're doing this year through this Gospel, the fourth Gospel. Uh, we're still quite early in the Gospel of John, and it's timely talking about the story of God because this morning we come to a passage in John's Gospel which uh, really describes the personal challenge and invitation of Jesus and the way in which this whole big story of salvation and redemption comes down to the life of the individual and the way in which the Gospel makes a claim on every human life, every individual life. So we're in John chapter 3 this morning. If you've got a Bible, uh, pull it out. The words are on the screen, but always good to have a copy of the Bible open in front of you. If it's on your device, that's fine. If you've got the old paper version, that's fine too. John chapter 3, and this is a fairly well-known, maybe at least for some of you, a story of Jesus having a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. Uh, let me read it to you in John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So Nicodemus is an interesting character. Uh, he's the kind of guy actually I could quite imagine coming along to the story of God and probably quite enjoying it. He's the kind of guy you could imagine sitting down in the coffee lab and having a good old conversation with at night. He seemed to like conversations at night. Uh, you know, sitting down, he's open to talking about faith. He's open to talking about spiritual things. He's open to talking about Jesus. He is probably, if he was around today, he would be labeled by church marketing experts a seeker. 
and uh, churches would put on seeker services and so on, and he'd feel very comfortable and very at home. Uh, a seeker being someone who's interested in exploring the claims of Jesus, but not quite sure whether they want to commit just yet. And that's Nicodemus. In a lot of ways, Nicodemus is an unlikely seeker because he was a Pharisee. Uh, and the Pharisees in the Gospels are a group that by and large opposed Jesus and opposed his teaching often quite strongly. The word Pharisee means separate ones. And they were a group within Judaism in the first century who rigorously argued that Jews should be completely separate from all other peoples and all other practices. So they insisted on uh, a physical separation of Jews from non-Jews uh, through hospitality. You don't, you don't do trade with non-Jews. You don't do commerce. You don't socialize with non-Jews. They insisted that Jews lived completely separate lives. And they insisted on the moral separation of Jews through keeping of the law. That by keeping Torah, by keeping the law, Jews would show themselves to be completely separate from all other nations, a, a people unto themselves, literally a law unto themselves. And the Pharisees were meticulous law keepers. They kept the law, all 613 commandments in the Old Testament perfectly, or at least they tried to. And when they didn't, they made sure they made restitution for that through the various sacrifices and offerings. And they even built up a whole body of teachings around the law so that no one would break one of the particular laws. They fenced and hedged the law in various ways. And Nicodemus was one of these guys. He was one of these law keepers. You could sort of think of him like a religious lawyer of the day. He knew the law very well, the Jewish law, and he kept it scrupulously. Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, he was also a member of the Jewish ruling council. That was the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was quite an important political body. It had oversight of all Jewish affairs throughout Palestine, all religious, political, social affairs of all Jews. Even though they were under the Roman government, they still were a, were a powerful legislative body that ordered the affairs of Jews throughout Palestine and Jews living outside Palestine as well. They were kind of like a judiciary. So Nicodemus is a powerful man within the Jewish community. He's a man of real standing. He's a man of the law. He's a teacher. Even Jesus refers to him as a teacher within Israel. And yet, he's fascinated by Jesus. He's, he's drawn somehow to Jesus, and he's intrigued by this rabbi, this worker of miracles. And so he comes to talk to Jesus at night, probably because he's scared of his reputation, probably because he knows that if he's found to be having a good, honest talk to Jesus, that could be the end of his career. In John's Gospel, the, the thing that Jesus has just done before this conversation is he's gone through the temple and cleared it and overturned the tables and driven out the money changers. That would have been appalling to the Pharisees. That would have been abhorrent to the Sanhedrin, the precious temple, the sacred place of God's presence and work on earth. And Jesus has just gone and driven people out of it. And here's, in the midst of that, here's Nicodemus still coming to Jesus, still wanting a conversation. But this is high-risk stuff for him. Having a conversation like this with Jesus for Nicodemus would have risked his reputation, would have risked his career, would have risked his social standing within the Jewish community. And yet still he comes to Jesus. And he begins by saying, Rabbi, we know that you come from God because nobody can do these amazing things that you're doing, these miracles, unless God is with him. And it's interesting, Nicodemus is prepared to acknowledge Jesus is a rabbi, an official Jewish teacher. He's prepared to acknowledge Jesus is a worker of miracles. He's prepared even to acknowledge, in some sense, Jesus has come from God, although that's true in a much deeper way than Nicodemus would have realized. But he's conceding a lot. And you get the impression Nicodemus has an open heart, that he's not coming to antagonize, but he, he wants to learn. 
He wants to know. He wants to understand more about who Jesus is. And I love the way in this passage that Jesus doesn't send Nicodemus away. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't tell him he's stupid. But he engages in conversation with him. He meets him right where he's at. And he draws him in. And he has a gentle and warm and loving conversation with him. But still a conversation that in a few short verses completely turns Nicodemus' world on its head completely brings about this Copernican revolution in Nicodemus' whole theological framework. All the ways in which Nicodemus thought God worked and this and the whole architecture of his theology is dismantled by Jesus in the span of a fairly short conversation. And this interaction that Jesus has with Nicodemus, it revolves around two pictures. I want to look at these two pictures that Jesus gives. He loves talking in pictures, loves using images, and he gives Nicodemus here two pictures. A lot of what he says hangs around them. And these pictures really describe the point at which the gospel becomes personal. This whole big story of redemption that we so often tell and look at at shore, here is the point where it comes down to the life of the individual and makes a claim on the individual human person. And these pictures come together to form a wonderful illustration of that. I want to look at these pictures and then look at John's famous summary statement of this in verse 16. So the first picture that Jesus gives Nicodemus is the picture of a new birth. In verse 5, uh, verse 3 rather, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. I don't know what you think of when you hear the phrase, born again. For some reason, I always hear it in a Southern American accent. I don't know why. I blame Billy Graham for that. You know, he was always talking about being born again. I have great respect for Billy Graham. But, you know, it's one of those phrases that gets bandied around. uh, Often a phrase that, unfortunately, is used quite pejoratively toward Christians. Sometimes you hear journalists uh, slapping that phrase on Christians, almost to sort of distinguish groups of Christians. You know, you've got the normal Christians, ordinary Christians, and then you've got the born-again Christians. You know, it's like a disclaimer. Something wacky is about to happen with these guys, you know. Uh, But, of course, Nicodemus knew none of this. He had no reference point for what being born again means, and he had nothing to sort of pin this on. For Nicodemus... There really was, as, as a Jew, as a Pharisee, there was no sense of a personal transformation that had to occur in order to be right with God. For Nicodemus, the way in which a person becomes right with God is to be a child of Abraham and to express that through keeping the law, but fundamentally to be a child of Abraham. The only kind of born-again transformation conversion that Nicodemus would have known of is for a non-Jew to be proselytized into the Jewish community. There's a kind of transformational conversion. But once you're in the family of God, you're in. And so the idea of personal transformation is quite foreign to Nicodemus, which is why he comes back at Jesus with this bizarre-sounding statement about how can someone be born when they're old? How can someone enter a second time into their mother's womb? Now, clearly, I think Nicodemus is not literally suggesting that people can go back into their womb and be born again. He's not that silly. He's not taking this literally. But he's using a bit of rhetoric to try and get Jesus to expand on what he means, to try and get Jesus to flesh out what he's saying, because Nicodemus, this this idea of being born again is quite foreign to him. And so Jesus explains in verse 5, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Well, that doesn't really clear it up, does it? What does that mean? Uh, There are a lot of views on this. It's an interesting one. Being born of water and the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, 
There's, there's a few different options here, a uh, few different teams that you can choose. Uh, team A believes that uh, the water here is a reference to natural birth, and the Spirit is a reference to a spiritual birth. So that's sort of what Jesus is contrasting. That's team A. Team B is the uh, water represents water baptism, and spirit represents spirit baptism. You like that team if you're a Pentecostal, you're on that team. All right, maybe. Here's the third team. This is my team. Uh, this is the team that says both of these things, water and spirit, probably refer to the same event uh, seen from two different perspectives. And that's because I think behind this, this verse, this passage, there is a passage in the Old Testament that Jesus is drawing on, which makes a lot of sense because he's dealing here with a man of the law. He goes back, I think, to Ezekiel chapter 36. Let me just briefly read this to you. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Ezekiel 36, a prophecy of God about Israel's restoration. Uh, we looked at this last week. God's great promise to renew Israel, to restore the fortunes of his people. Ezekiel uses uh, different language for this. Here's what he says in verse 25, uh, what God says to Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So here in Ezekiel, both water and spirit come together. And they're both part of the same promise that God gives to Israel, to his people, that he is going to come and restore them and renew them. And this is what's happening through Jesus. Jesus has come as the one who brings renewal and brings restoration, brings rebirth into our lives. And the two great hallmarks of this rebirth that we get to experience through Jesus are water and the Spirit. On the one hand, water represents forgiveness. God says, I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. That's the idea of water. It's the idea of forgiveness. It's a cleansing from all of our sin. It's the greatest promise in the whole Bible that you and I can be forgiven. So simple, we just gloss it, but just think about that. We get to be forgiven. Past and present and, and future, that Jesus brings about a deep cleansing and purging in our lives that sets us free from sin and forgives us. It's the clean water that God sprinkles over our lives through Jesus that forgives us. Then the other part of this promise is what we celebrate today on Pentecost Sunday, the giving of the Spirit. The Spirit, I think, is a reference to the Holy Spirit that God pours out on all those who are followers of Jesus. And, and this promise in Ezekiel is so important. It, it's the point at which God promises that the Holy Spirit is going to become available to all of God's people. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was only given to certain people, certain times, for certain tasks. It was very selective. But now, says Ezekiel, the day is coming when God is going to pour out His Spirit and give His Spirit to all of His people, put a new heart, a new spirit. He's going to move them to obey His laws and to obey His decrees. This long-awaited Spirit of God will one day be here for all of us. And sure enough, on the day of Pentecost, that's exactly what happened. It hadn't quite happened by the time Nicodemus talks to Jesus. At that point in Jesus' ministry, the only person who was filled with the Spirit in a permanent sense was Jesus. 
The Spirit had not yet fully been given, but on the day of Pentecost, it was. On the day of Pentecost, with the rushing wind and the tongues of fire, the Spirit of God came. And from that point on, every person who surrenders their life to Jesus is filled with the presence of God's Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God moves us to become transformed in our lives to reflect the character of Jesus and be drawn more deeply into the grace of God. We were having a conversation around this at the Story of God course at our, at our little table group. Uh, we'd been talking about God's forgiveness, and one of the guys who was a salesman at my table uh, piped up, and he was a bit cynical of this whole idea of God's forgiveness in the way I described it. And he said, you know, it's, it's a bit of a sales tactic, isn't it? I, th- I think he sort of interpreted me as basically giving a big sales pitch for Jesus. Uh, and he said, it's a bit of a sales pitch, isn't it, because... On the one hand, you tell people they can be forgiven. It's a great offer. On the other hand, they can go and do whatever they want tomorrow because they're forgiven. You know? And the way he, he described it, he said, it's like people can have a bob either way. You know, eternal life, forgiveness, but I can go out and live whatever kind of life I want tomorrow. And now, in a sense, he's right. In a sense, forgiveness is unconditional. It doesn't depend on what you do tomorrow. It's not you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. It's absolute. It's unconditional. In another sense, I think what he was missing there is the second part of this promise, the Holy Spirit. Because without the Spirit, you just have forgiveness in a kind of transactional way. That forgiveness is like God just goes into a sin register and deletes your sin, and you can be forgiven, and you can do whatever you want. Forgiveness on its own might lead you there, but with the Spirit, the Spirit of God comes to fill our hearts. The Spirit of God comes to make forgiveness personal, so that God's presence fills our life. And God, by His Spirit, anchors us deeply in the grace of God and transforms our heart to bring about new deep inclinations of the heart, new deep desires that we want to follow Jesus and we want our lives to reflect His life and we want to desire what He desires and we want to be changed and we want to love God and this proclivity in our heart to desire God and to love Him. This is what the Spirit brings about in our heart over time. So if you just see forgiveness as a transaction, if Even worse, if you see it as a license just to keep on living the way you want to live, then maybe you need to come back and ask God to renew His Spirit within you, to truly renew the fire of His Spirit that gives us a deep desire for the things that please God, a hunger and a thirst after God Himself. That's the work of the Spirit. So water and Spirit must go together. Forgiveness, cleansing of sin, but the the giving, the empowering, the enabling of the presence of God in the form of the Spirit to guide us, to comfort us, to challenge us, convict us, and always, always, always to remind us of the constant faithful presence of God in our lives. So water and Spirit, these two wonderful gifts that Jesus brings in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit, gifts that are so incredible in our lives that Jesus describes them as a new birth. It's nothing less than a rebirth that happens when a person receives these gifts and comes to Christ. They are forgiven, totally cleansed. Don't just have their hearts cleansed, they receive a new heart, a new spirit within them. So this is the first picture, the picture of a rebirth that happens through Jesus, the gifts of forgiveness and the spirit. Then the second picture that Jesus gives Nicodemus rounds out this picture a little bit more, and it's down in verse 14. The first picture was around a birth, the second picture is about a snake. Not normally two pictures you'd put together. In verse 14, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, 
that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, this is just genius stuff here from Jesus. What he does, I mean, again, he's dealing with Nicodemus, a man steeped in the law, steeped in the Torah. Where's the best place to go to build some common ground with this guy? To the law, to the Torah. So where does Jesus go? Book of Numbers, chapter 21. He goes back explicitly to a story in the Old Testament that Nicodemus would have known like the back of his hand, and Jesus gives it this new life to show Nicodemus what new life looks like. He goes back to Numbers 21, and the story is back then that Israel was, it was in the wilderness on their way to Canaan, and they start grumbling. They grumble against God. They grumble against Moses. And so God sends this judgment against Israel. He sends snakes, and the snakes bite the people, inject them with this venomous poison, and a number of the Israelites die at that point. And then the Israelites, still alive, cry out to Moses, and they say, Moses, we've sinned, we have done evil. Please, please, please intercede for God for us and, and ask him to turn this awful plague away from us. So Moses intercedes to God, and God says to Moses, okay, I want you to make a, make a snake, create a serpent, and put it on a pole and lift it up in the air. And everyone who looks at this snake, this, it is made of bronze, this bronze snake, everyone who looks at the snake, they will live. They will find healing. So Moses does this, lifts up the snake in the wilderness, and the Israelites that looked at the snake live. Not all of them, because some had already died, but the ones that looked to the snake, they received healing from God. Now you, you already see where this is going, don't you? You see what Nicodemus didn't yet see, the way this is such a beautiful picture of the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus uses this to show Nicodemus what happens, what's going to happen through his death on the cross. That just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, the Son of Man, Jesus, was physically lifted up on the wooden cross. He was impaled to a wooden cross and lifted up. Literally, the, the word is exalted, lifted up. Behind this story there's a deeper meaning to the idea of the snake. I mean, if you were reading your Bible, if you're reading the story as a Jew, the image of a snake has got some obvious connotations there going right back to the Garden of Eden, going right back to Satan, the serpent, who tempts the first human beings, who brings sin into the world. And, and that story, I think, gets mingled in with the story of the snake in the wilderness so that Jesus is lifted up on the cross and he becomes that bronze serpent. He becomes that bronze snake. Just think about that. It's an incredible thing that when Jesus died, he didn't just take our sin upon himself. He did that, but he did something more. Paul says, he became sin for us. That is an incredible statement, that Jesus became sin. He became the snake. He became the very embodiment. Now, I'm not saying he was a sinner, I'm certainly not saying that Jesus became Satan in any sense, but Jesus became the embodiment of sin for us. As he hung on that cross, Jesus became sin. That he became the embodiment of all of our sin, all of our selfishness, all of our idolatries, all the world's pain and sin and evil and suffering all met in the person of Jesus on the cross. He absorbed it and he became it. He became sin for us. So that by looking to Jesus, we can be healed. This is the good news on the other side of Jesus' death. 
that we are like those Israelites who have been bitten by the snake. We've been bitten by the serpent. We've been bitten by sin. And we all have now the venomous poison of sin running through our veins. That's, that's our reality. We're mortally wounded. We're unable to save ourselves. We're unable to find the antidote. We don't have the answer. We can't fix ourselves. But what we can do is we can look to the Son of Man hanging on the cross. We can look to the one who's been lifted up. We can look to the one who became that snake for us, became sin for us, and we can find healing and redemption in him and only in him. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus has been lifted up. We can look to him. Now, the way Jesus says this is everyone who believes can have life. But we've got to be clear about this word believes. It's not just about believing certain things with your mind. It's not just that people who believe that Jesus is the Son of God are going to receive this healing. The book of James says, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. Even the demons believe in God. Even the demons believe that Jesus was the Son of God. That's an important point, but that's not going to get you there. What's required is faith. That's why this word believe is the Greek word for faith. Faith means to entrust our lives not just mental assent to certain cognitive truths. It's the trusting of our life. It's the handing of our life over to another. So to look to Jesus in this sense is to give our lives over to Jesus, to hand our lives. There's a process here of surrendering our lives to Jesus, bringing our life under the authority of Jesus as Lord. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord. We bring our lives under his lordship, his authority. We bring our lives in submission to him. That's faith, a surrender, an entrusting of our life. And on that basis, we receive the healing that's found in Jesus. We receive the healing that flows to us from the cross. And we are healed from the snake bite of sin. We receive exactly the things that Jesus has just described to Nicodemus. Eternal life, the rebirth, forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Spirit. The snake in the wilderness is such a beautiful picture of salvation. It's a beautiful picture of the cross and the healing that comes to us on the basis of what Jesus has done. And if you want a really simple way of keeping that image in your mind, then think about it when you see this image. That's the Medical Council of New Zealand. Now, to be fair, that image is drawn from Greek mythology. There's a Greek god, Asclepius, uh, who was claimed to have a rod with a snake wrapped around it. And interestingly, Jesus would have known about the legend of Asclepius in his own day. It predated Jesus. So there was already this mythology around Asclepius, the god of healing, who has a rod with a snake wrapped around it. And isn't it interesting that Jesus comes along and he, he takes over that whole myth and replaces it with the story of his own divine healing. That in a sense, he co-opts that mythology into the truth of the gospel and uses this to talk about the healing that is found in his name. And so whenever you see, that's a, a symbol that's often used in medical services, emergency services. It's, a, it's generally a symbol of healing. Whenever you see that healing, you can remember the snake on the pole, the Son of Man, lifted up, draws people to himself so that whoever believes, whoever looks to him, will experience eternal life. It's a great reminder. It could be a good conversation starter. So let's wrap this up then with the summary statement that John makes in verse 16. Uh, this is where these two images just come together so beautifully and powerfully. Verse 16 is the most famous verse in the whole Bible, hands down. It's always the most searched for verse on Bible Gateway and all of those 
uh, internet search engines. Uh, so famous, I think, this verse is that we often lose the significance of it because we become numb to it over time. But it brings together this whole message so well. John says, For God so loved the world. That's so important that all of this is driven by the love of God. That God's love is what drives the story of redemption forward. Not his wrath, not his judgment, not his anger. There's a place for all those in the biblical story. Yes, they are real attributes of God. But it's God's love that leads him to rescue us and to reach out his arms of grace to us. John doesn't say, for God was so angry at the world that he gave his only son. He doesn't say that God was so vengeful against the world that he gave his only son. He says, for God so loved. God is love. And the whole plan of salvation finds its origin and its source in the deep love of God. We've got to get first things first. For God so loved the world. And by the way, the, the idea of the world for Nicodemus, this would have been a paradigm shift. If Nicodemus was writing this verse, it would have said, for God so loved Israel. That was his, it's not, he's not being offensive by that. That's just the, the framework that he operated within. This is a big shift now. The idea that God's redemptive activity is moving beyond Israel to encompass the nations. And God's love is for the whole world. It's hinted at strongly in the Old Testament, but now it's right here. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, or the old translations, his only begotten son. And that's the image of the snake on the pole. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his son, not just to live, not just to be incarnate, but to die. He gave his son to crucifixion. He gave his son to be emptied, even to death on a cross, says Paul in Philippians 2. The incredible sacrificial self-giving love of God is on display in Jesus. So that whoever believes in him, there's the looking to Jesus, whoever believes in him, has faith in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. We receive the new birth. We receive forgiveness. We receive the gift of the Spirit. These two realities, these two alternatives, uh, perish on the one hand, eternal life on the other hand. They are not just future states of being. Both of them start now. To perish begins in this life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Present tense. To those who are already perishing. If you are rejecting and resisting the love of God and the offer of reconciliation through Jesus, you're already perishing. You've been bitten by the snake. You've received a mortal wound. You may have a great lifestyle. You may have a very healthy bank balance, but spiritually you're perishing. The life is being drawn out of you. You are perishing. And likewise, eternal life starts now. Not just going to heaven when you die. That's part of it, but it starts now. Literally, eternal life means life in the age to come. And we talked in the introduction that the age to come with the resurrection of Jesus has already broken into the present. That began on Easter Sunday. Even as the old age is passing away, the new age is here, the new life is here, and anyone who looks to Christ, places their faith in Jesus, enters into eternal life now, enters into the age to come now. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you're experiencing eternal life now, the age of the resurrection, the age of new creation, the age to come, eternal life. It all starts now, and it continues on into the afterlife in heaven and ultimately in the resurrection. And so if you've never entrusted your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you to do that today. I want to encourage you to take that step. There's nothing more you need to do to make that happen. Don't need to scrub up your life anymore. 
Don't need to get yourself any more together. You can place your faith in Jesus today by looking to the snake. I know that that's a very exclusive message in our culture. I know that in some ways that's incompatible with the moral relativism of our culture, which says that the one cardinal sin is to claim that any one religion or belief system or worldview is any more right or true than any other. And yet here at the heart of the gospel is the claim of Jesus that only those who look to the Son of Man can receive eternal life. That's the exclusive claim. It's not my words, it's not my opinion. These are the words of Jesus himself, that those who look to Jesus. I know we can run the hypothetical scenarios about the guy that lives on the desert island and never hears the gospel, and what about him? We can talk about the exceptions. I'm sure there is a leniency in God's mercy for the desert island guy, all right? He he crops up in every story. (laughs) Everyone wants to ask about the gospel. But let's deal with what Jesus has actually told us, that those who look to him and those who have heard the message, which is now all of you and me, we are responsible for what we do with it. And only those who look to the Son of Man can receive this healing and this life that's found in Jesus' name. It's not meant to be arrogant. It's not meant to be bigoted and hypocritical. It is meant to be truth of the gospel and the good news that's found in Jesus Christ, that life is available today in him for you. And so I want to encourage you, if you've never embraced the offer of life that's found in Jesus, you can do that today. I'd love to talk with you afterwards about taking that step of faith to begin a relationship with Jesus. For those of you that have, for those of you that have been through this rebirth and are receiving eternal life even now, I want to encourage you to keep on seeking Jesus, to keep on seeking the greater work of the Spirit in your life. The Spirit is given to us to transform us, to keep on leading us deeper and deeper into grace, not just getting over the line of faith and then leaving us, but the Spirit anchors us more and more deeply in the grace of God and seeks to bring about renewal, transformation, and healing in our lives over the course of our lifetime. So keep on opening your life up to the gift of the Spirit, which is already yours through Jesus, if you're a Christian. And what about Nicodemus? little postscript here. What about Nicodemus? Well, John doesn't tell us how he responded in this conversation, but he does eventually tell us. In John 19, look over there for just one second as we wrap up. This is too good to miss out. Just after Jesus has died on the cross, we have this scene of Joseph of Arimathea who takes the body of Jesus down. John 19 verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. Who does that sound like? (laughs) With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And here it is. He was accompanied by Nicodemus the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Just in case you think it's another Nicodemus, it's the same guy. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped in it with the spices and strips of linen. And so here's Nicodemus. And while John doesn't come out and say it, it really is strongly suggested here that by this stage, he's a disciple of Jesus. That both he and Joseph of Arimathea have become followers of Jesus. Uh, still maybe scared of the Jewish leaders, still maybe operating as a Pharisee. That's a whole other conversation. Maybe still in the Sanhedrin, we don't know. But with a faith, with a genuine faith in Jesus, he's on the spiritual journey. And uh, I want to encourage you, wherever you are on the spiritual journey, let's keep seeking Jesus. Let's put ourselves in the place of Nicodemus and keep on seeking. Seeking is not just something that non-Christians do. We're all seekers, or we should be. Seeking the deep life that's found in Jesus, seeking the deep faith that's found in Jesus and continuing to seek the work of the Spirit in our lives.
the rebirth that transforms us by the gift of forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit found in Christ. Let's pray as we get ready to take communion together this morning. Jesus, we want to thank you for the eternal life that you offer us. Thank you for the gift that we so easily take for granted. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for life. Thank you that it's so freely given to us. That Jesus, even though we are snake-bitten people, you've come and provided the antidote to sin. That you became sin for us. That you drew all the poison of sin into yourself. And now you've just given us healing. Lord, I pray for that healing to be made afresh in our lives today. We receive it afresh. We receive your grace. We receive afresh your forgiveness, Jesus, for anything that we need your forgiveness for. We receive the life that's found in your name. And we thank you so much. You didn't have to do any of this, but you've done it because you love us. Thank you so much, God, for your love that's been expressed for us through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.